All right, uh, welcome folks. Thanks so much for being here. My name is Michael Fraud. I'm the Assistant Program Director at Drisha. Very excited to have everyone back here for the second session of What is Halakha? The Fascinating History of an Essential Term with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zukir. Uh, Rabbi Zukir is a member of the Drisha faculty as well as a postdoctoral fellow in Jewish studies at McGill University. He received his PhD in ancient Judaism from Yale University and was also a member of Yeshiva University's Kolal Elyon. Uh, he is also an alumnus of Yeshiva University's uh, rabbinical ordination program at Reitz of Yeshiva Haaretzion, uh, the Wexner and Tikva Fellowships. Uh, we last week started this class, which is aiming to study the different meanings of the term halakha as they develop over time, and to use that as a lens for considering what that can say about the practice of halakha overall. Uh, how do we translate it? How do we understand its function? Uh, and what significance might there be in shifts in that over time? So last time we started talking about some definitions, started talking about the different ways that the term is used in various places. And the, today we are going to be talking a bit more about the origins of the term itself. Uh, with that, Rabbi Zukir, uh, I think we can go ahead and get started. Okay, thank you very much, Michael. And as you said, last time we spoke about the term halacha and especially how it's used in, uh, in, the, in classical rabbinic literature. Mishnah, Midrashay Halakha, the Talmud. And uh, you know, we sort of got a sense of what it means or the range of things it can mean. It can refer to the oral law overall. It can refer specifically to traditions. It can refer to the law as practiced, um, more so than in theory, although not fully. Um, but we saw there was a really uh, a wide range or a, a variety of uses, of specific uses, but within that same broader picture of practical oral Torah, which I think is more or less how the term is used today. But we got we got a sense of how it's used uh, in Chazal, and yeah, I'll just mention uh, everyone's invited to uh, join on screen if they can. Um, it always it makes it, the learning experience better and more interactive, so everyone's invited to do that. But of course, uh, for those who can't, we understand. Um, so yeah, so last time we we looked at the term in Chazal in its classical sense, which largely uh, those term th those uh, meanings continue. But now we're going to take a step back. We're going to look at the emergence of the term. Where does the term halakha come from originally, number one? And then number two, as sort of a meta question, um, how those discussions and some of the ideas, some of the theories as to where the term halakha comes from actually tells us a lot about the people studying the term. So a little historiography we'll throw in and uh, should, give us, should give us an interesting picture of how these things, uh, how, how, how halakha plays out both in ancient Judaism and in contemporary, uh, contemporary, uh, the contemporary scholarly world over the last few decades. With that said, let's, uh, let's jump out to the shared screen. And here we go. So, okay, so we'll start, if we're looking for the source of the term halakha, the term in its straightforward sense does not appear in Tanakh in the Bible. If it did, this would be a very, very short class. Um, we don't have the term itself, but we do have some things that are somewhat related and that you might, you know, you might uh, draw a connection between them. Uh, let's take a look at a few examples, and I could have given a bunch more, but we'll, we'll look at a few. Um, you should warn them or teach them about the laws and teachings. You teach them the path that they should go on, and the actions they should do, right? This is talking about uh, Moshe as being charged as the great educator and judge of the people. And then he's gonna appoint, then he's asked to appoint uh, judges uh, under him. But there's this idea of, you should tell them about the way they should go, the path they should follow, the way of life. You could say, you know, the, the halacha, if you wanna get, uh, if you wanna you know, jump, uh, jump a little bit. So the way they should practice their religious, uh, their religious lives and their lives overall. So. There's no, there's no early source. It's not like we see Chazal say, ah, derech yechubah, this is halacha. Actually, there's Chazal, the rabbis in a bunch of different places say this refers to a whole bunch of different things, specific mitzvah or chesed or, uh, or whatnot. But we don't find a teaching that says, yeah, yechubah, that's halacha. But we could draw that conclusion or that, that connection ourselves. Or another example, this jumping to 
uh, Dvarim, Moshe himself is uh, speaking. The whole path, the whole way that God commanded you, you should go on that way, go on that path. In order that you live long uh, on the, in the land that you'll inherit, the land, uh, presumably the land of Israel. So this is, uh, again, follow the path that God set out. So that's uh, similar, but you know, from someone else's mouth, but a similar idea. Uh, alternatively, we might think of this path that we're going on, uh, a, a different verse in Dvarim, again, again, Moshe's speech. You should follow the commandments of God, but go in his ways, not in path that God sets out for you, but they follow in God's own ways, as, as this is generally understood. So uh, the rabbis understand God is merciful. You should be merciful. Uh, God visits the sick. Avram, you should visit the sick, etc. So maybe maybe uh, the path that we're going on, if that's what where halakha comes from, is not, is not just the path that is laid out explicitly uh, by God, but also just the path that God takes. We should follow God in that path as well. So from all these examples, you might say, you know, it talks about following a path, whether it's God's path or the path that God provided. And maybe that's a source for halakha. Could be, but we don't really have the connective tissue. We don't really have sources that say, yes, this is talking about halakha. We don't find those sources. So, you know, there may be some relationship, but it's a, it's a bit of a jump. Actually, I, I took a look at the uh, Encyclopedia Talmudit entry, the Talmudic Encyclopedia entry for Halakha, and they said, they threw in this pasuk. They said, you know, the path you go on, maybe that's where Halakha comes from. Maybe, but there's not really an early source. They didn't have uh, anything based on it. Just, it's a, you know, they're surmising that, and maybe they're right. Um, but, uh, but we don't have a clear basis. Let's look at another possible biblical term, also related to halakha in some way, or, or apparently related, that may be the source. And it's going to sound a little odd, but hopefully it'll make sense in a few minutes. So if we look in Ezra, and uh, Ezra, of course, one of the late biblical books set in the Second Temple, early Second Temple period, um, so the, and, and under Persian rule, right? The uh, Ezra and Nehemiah come back, and uh, uh, sorry, they talk, right? They talk to the, um, they talk to the uh, governor, and the governor allows them to come back, the uh, right, and to resettle, and to resettle and rebuild the temple. So, the but it's not you know it's not free, no free, no free temples, as the expression goes. And uh, the you know it says okay, you know the king should get the hain shuraya yishtachulun in you know in in way of the fact that the city will be rebuilt and the walls will be reinforced, this is Jerusalem, what will he get? He'll get minda v'lo bahalach. He'll get these three things. Um, there are three different types of taxes. I saw one translation says the toll, the tribute, and the custom tax. But essentially, it's three different types of taxes. We'll see a couple different translations of what they are. Um, uh, so you have to, and if you don't give it, then I'll destroy your, your city, right? Or, um, uh, right, uh, and then it says later on, a few verses later, he says that the they were they were paying their three types of taxes, and then a few chapters later, again announcing to the people that they go and pray in the temple that the right then, then he sort of gave him a, a respite from the tax. The point is the term halach means tax in this in this period, and again, the later you get in the biblical period, the closer you get to the rabbinic period. So some have raised the theory. And we'll, we'll spell it out a bit further in a couple of minutes that this halach tax somehow is the precursor to the term halacha. Now, what do taxes have to do with law? Well, there's some connection, right? Uh, there's even a whole area of tax law. Um, but uh, well, we'll get to more specifics in a second. Let's first figure out what exactly this is. Rashi doesn't give us much detail. He says, Mine me simheim, the kesef Google. There are different taxes, head taxes. He doesn't give specifics, but even Ezra and the Mitsudat Sion each give a different a different uh, theory as to what this halach tax is. He says, the minda um, min harichush, this is your estate, uh, your estate tax, your property tax maybe, uvlo mas hamedino, this is a, a state, you know, based on the, the state, on the location, tax, halach meches hahochim derech hamelech. It's called the halach tax, the going tax, because it's, like, it's a toll, it's a, it's a road toll. If you use the king's road, king's road, of course, is always the main road, the derech hamelech, Right, that's the main road everyone would use, like the highway. Um, use the, the king's road, you have to pay a tax. 
So the halach maybe is a is a highway tax, or the mitzvah it's a different theory. No, 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 it's not, you're not the one going, the king is going. Whenever the king would pass through, there would be some sort of levy that uh, the king would place on the people, you'd have to give it to him. Whatever exactly the halach is, it's some sort of tax that either relates to you going places or the king going places on these theories. Um, you know, whether, whether these are the, the uh, whichever etymology is right, these or others, um, it'll, it won't make a difference for our purposes. Just hold that thought. This idea of the halach possibly relating to halacha. Before we get to that, um, some some have noted. Uh, actually, we mentioned this name earlier. The a commentary on the aruch translation uh, suggested that this uncle is maybe is an early source. It says in the context of marital law, marrying a, a slave or whatnot. You can set aside a young uh, a young slave to your son. And uh, then you have to treat her like the usual rule of girls, meaning like a, like a wife. And uncle says, if you, right, if you set her aside for your son or you, you establish her for your son, you should follow the laws of the daughters of Israel, like Kimishpat. The problem with this is uncle is pretty late. Uncle is, uh, you know, even on the earliest dates for uncle it's during the period of, of the Tanaim. So this wouldn't be an early source, but unless it points to something earlier. So maybe. It's possible that uh, Uncleus has pointed something earlier and, uh, you know, the, the idea of halakha corresponding to Mishpat. But this, that doesn't seem, and most likely, Uncleus is following what Chazal are doing. So, well, let's keep thinking about our halach theory. And that's picked up by uh, the great uh, Talmud scholar, Shaul Lieberman. It's a footnote. He, you know, I think nowadays this would be at least an article. Who knows, maybe a book. Back in the, in the good old days, 70 years ago, this is a footnote. His, his etymology of the term halakha. So he's talking sort of in passing, he mentioned halakha, he has a footnote, he says, the origin of this word is not definitively established. Right? It's not clear exactly what halakha means, but he tries to draw a parallel to the term canon in, in Roman law and in Latin, right? So canon is like the canon law, it was like the basic law that they had, but he points out that, he quotes Wenger, canon originally meant the rent paid by a tenant to the landowner. So canon, it came to mean law in Roman culture, but originally it meant taxes, land tax paid to the government. And he says, well, maybe. And then he says, canon is like regula. Regula is also a rule. So then they have, there's something synonymous here. They both have stability, regularity, and fixedness, right? If you have a set tax every year, it's like the law, right? It's a set thing. It doesn't change. Whether, whether the law changes or not, maybe that can be a, uh, another discussion. Um, uh, or at least in, in theory, how law works and whether it's supposed to be fixed or not. But you know, the canon is similar to taxes in the sense that, or the canon as law and canon as tax, would, it would be consistent in that it's stable, regular, and fixed. Okay, and if you think about that in light of the term halakha, maybe we have a parallel here, right? In Ezra, the tax halakh is mentioned, as we saw. It's been identified, and now we get the Akkadian, it's been identified with the Babylonian ilku tax, okay? All you need to know about ilku is that it's related to halakha, right? It's basically the same, you know, you, you drop the hey, but it's, you, have a, you have the same vowel. The u is like the, the i at the end. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty close to term halakha, which is already extant in the laws of Hammurabi, right, centuries earlier than Ezra. And apparently in, in Aramaic, a bit later, the land tax is called the ilcha, which of course makes sense. It's the halakh, just with the aleph at the end. But this is a step closer to getting us to halakha or the regula, or the canon, or the fixed rule. Um, so that's his, his suggestion, that just like in Akkadian, Aramaic, and Hebrew, we have this term ilku, or halach, or halakha, that is connected to the Hebrew halakha as law, just like the canon in, in, in Roman law, it can mean both, first means tax, and then means law. It's a similar move to go from tax to law, because it's something that's fixed. It's a pretty cool uh, and interesting theory, although we'll see some, some dispute it. Um, but uh, right, he says, in practice, halakha has the same meaning as horos, which is boundary, which means regular. It's a statement of law. It's something that's set in stone, right? A boundary, halakha. This is the, the law. It's like a line. You have the shurat hadin, the line of the law uh, in rabbinic literature. And it talks about moving the boundary, and that's uh, comparable to changing the law. So that's his suggestion, which would tie into the verses we saw in Ezra, this halakha text in Ezra, and would tie into Akkadian 
uh, the Akkadian term for tax as well, following that, that Roman law parallel, which is pretty, uh, pretty cool. So that's one theory. I don't know if anyone has comments or questions on this, but we'll, uh, if you do speak up now, if not, we're going to look at an alternate theory um, that uh, Tzvi Abush, more recently, you know, uh, only uh, three and a half decades ago, has a different, a different Akkadian term that he wants to, to throw in, alaktu and halakha. So as you can tell, the alaktu term is going to be his, his preferred term, where we're not going to spend, we're going to look at a few snippets from the article. Um, but basically, alaktu has been translated way, path, course, behavior, and the like, which of course is very similar to how halakha is translated. And um, he ties it into this idea of how, right, he talks about the gods in the night sky. Alaktu is like the planetary motion. That's the origin of the term, right? The movement of the planets. And, uh, and that then comes to mean like divine revelation, oracular decision, right? God's plan, so God has a plan for the stars. God also has a plan for the humans and how they should act. So there's some connection there between, between the two, between the, uh, what, you know, what's going on in the stars and what's going on on earth. Of course, that's how oracular decision-making works, right? You can sort of look at the stars. That's how astrology works. You look at the stars, it tells you what's going on on earth because both of them are part of God's plan in the, in the uh, ancient conception, or maybe even some not so ancient conceptions. Um, so uh, then he talks about this term that we find. Um, uh, where is it? Uh, right, this, this term lamad, which is very similar to the Hebrew lamad, and is found in connection with alaktu. And that's going to be interesting because, right, you're lomed halakha. In Hebrew, you study halakha. And there's also this idea of, of doing of lamadu, the alaktu. Um, fine. And now let's bring it back to the Hebrew side of things. So as he says, halakha, the term halakha is known first in the Mishnah. We'll see that's not, not everyone agrees about that, but that's his assumption. And he talks about the form of the term, right? Halakha is like drasha, is like ri'aya where you know, it's not the same as halicha, drisha, or ri'iya, but it's, it's a, an alternate form. And it's like a more abstract judicial term, right? So uh, a drasha is, is an exegesis as opposed to a drisha, which is uh, something that someone asks from someone. Similarly, a halicha is going, and halakha is the more abstract legal version of the, the going or the law. Um, fine. And, and uh, so within that frame, if you think about this term in Akkadian, or the uh, alakta lamadu in light of lamad halakha, that's a pretty striking parallel. This idea of right, alakta lamadu is to alakta lamadu is to is to seek out God's answer on something. Lomain halakha, you're essentially doing the same thing. You're studying the law, but if halakha comes from alakta, it's the same point. You're studying the path, the vision that God has to the world. And for the world, you're trying to figure that out. So. Um, Eva, she says, you know, it could be that halakha just comes from inner Hebrew development, right? It could just be that sometimes, and actually, we know this uh, uh, generally. Um, uh, there's, I, I didn't, I didn't take this in, but there's an article by uh, one of my professors, Stephen Fraud, who also, incidentally, is Michael's uncle. Sorry to out you, Michael, um, about how abstract terms, abstract terms emerge in the rabbinic period. You, so you'll, you'll find increasingly abstract terms, a root that exists biblically. And in the, in, in the Qumran, and then all of a sudden in Chazal will become an abstract term. So halakha is apparently one of them. So it could just be an internal development that the term halakha came out of, you know, the verb halak. That could be, but as you can guess, um, he prefers to, to see it as stemming in some way from the Akkadian, either directly from the Akkadian or through the Aramaic. Um, this idea that you sort of move from this idea of the, the divine plan, the way the stars move, that going, and then apply that to the vision for the world, the plan for the world, and then the practice that one should follow. He does note uh, Shaul Lieberman's approach that he, that halakha comes from Ilku. He says it's interesting, but he doesn't agree because Ilku is, is masculine, halakha is feminine, so it shouldn't have derived from it. We're not going to go into all the grammatical niceties of it, but he disagrees. He thinks it comes not from the term for tax, but for the term for uh, like a vision uh, or like a, the, the plan for the stars that then is, is uh, correlated with the plan on earth. And then, and uh, yeah, fine. So that's, that's, those are two different theories as to prior Akkadian roots for the term halakha. I don't think, you know, I don't think either of these suggestions are, uh, you know, are overwhelmingly, you know, are overwhelming proof. It could be, they're very, very interesting and suggestive parallels in each case in different ways. 
But it could also be that the term just emerged, as I said, sort of naturally, um, as, as your language comes up with more abstract terms. So you're going to come up for a term with uh, it's not It's not at all obvious that it had to come from uh, Akkadian, but uh, it could be. It's possible. So we have some options there. Um, we're going to turn now to focus on, or after I'll, I'll take some questions, we'll turn now to focus on the Dead Sea Scrolls and the term halakha. I don't know if there's any uh, deeper uh, you know, historiographical conclusions we can draw from this first piece. I think it's more just uh, you know, uh, Akkadian scholars are doing their thing and having some debates on the, on the technicalities of it. So I don't know if there's anything deeper on that part. Maybe there is, and I'm just not thinking of it. But we'll see the Dead Sea Scrolls, things get a lot more uh, personal in, in various ways. But before that, any questions or, or thoughts, uh, feel free to put them in the chat or say, oh, I see. Um, okay, there's a question about halakha as a concept and how it relates to different, different uh, practice and different areas of law, in this case, uh, gender and homosexuality and those issues. So as I said last time, I should, have, I should have repeated this time, we're not talking about the concept of halakha because there's a lot to say there. That's just a different topic. We're talking about the term halakha. So as far as I know, um, there's, you know, the term halakha doesn't uh, play into those issues more than any other issue. Um, so we can, that could be a different series. We can discuss that. But uh, any other questions um, are, uh, yeah, any other questions on the term halakha and what we've seen, different possible etymologies are, uh, are very much welcome. Or maybe someone has a different Akkadian term that they think fits better. I don't know. Never know. Um, okay, so then we will keep going, or I guess as they say in Akkadian, alaktu or something like that. Um, so uh, yeah, so let's, let's talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so as we saw in the Abish article, he says, he says, um, you know, the term only appears in the Mishnah. It first appears in the Mishnah. And we'll, we're going to see there's a bit of a debate about this. Number one, does the term actually appear in Hebrew uh, literature prior to the Mishnah? Number one. And number two, maybe it doesn't appear, but maybe it's sort of, uh, you know, everyone knows it and it's sort of behind, it stands behind some of the texts. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to examine that ourselves um, with, with some of these examples. So let's jump back in to the shared screen. And there's an article by John Meyer, who's a, uh, a Bible scholar at Notre Dame um, and uh, we have a Catholic uh, priest. So um, here's, his, here's his analysis, right? This is um, almost you know, 18 years ago now. Is there halakha, the noun, at Qumran, right? Qumran being the site where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And he says, very parallel to what we just said just a minute ago, he says this essay is not about the phenomenon that we now call halakha. It's pretty clear. You look at you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, various texts, the rule of the community, which, as you would guess, has a lot of rules that pertain to the community, or the halachic letter. We'll talk about the, that name in a bit. MMT, Miktsat Ma'aseha Torah, some of the actions or, or laws of the Torah. There's a whole letter about different things that people should and shouldn't do and what people get wrong about Jewish law. So it's clear from those texts, there's a lot of legal issues that are discussed. And even in Philo and Josephus, other first century texts that are not from Qumran, um, that are in Greek, there's clearly a lot of legal discussions in those things. And we can call that halakha. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But his paper is specifically about the question of the term halakha. Number one, was the Hebrew noun halakha in current use in the first century BCE and CE, around when the Dead Sea Scrolls are from? And if so, did it carry the sense clear from the Mishnah that it means a legal opinion or ruling about proper Jewish conduct, right? So number one, does the term appear at all? Uh, and number two, if it appears, what does it mean? Does it mean halakha as we understand it from rabbinic literature or does it mean uh, something else maybe? So we're gonna look at some of these uh, texts ourselves, some of these uh, texts from Qumran, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, I use the text provided in the study edition so here's a text, Rule of the Community, uh, um, right, as, as was just mentioned, which talks about various rules, but it also has, has some exhortations of the people, and it has this ceremony that they would have with priests. Um, right, the priests would, would say the greatness of God, and, uh, and they would say uh, all sorts of things to the Israelites who were there, and, and the priests and the Levites would speak and, about the sins of the Israelites. We're not going to go into detail about this. Um, but then what they would say 
all these people who are passing through this covenant, all the people who were at this ceremony, right? And it, it seems to have happened on Shavuos. So if you're ever wondering um, why there are no rituals on Shavuos, um, you can always uh, you can always wonder a bit more about what they did at Qumran. Apparently, they have this this ritual every year. Everyone would pass through the treaty. Modim achrehem lemor. They would say as follows: Naavinu pashanu chatanu hirshanu anu vavotenu milafanenu. We sinned and we did wrong and we were evil. Us and our forefathers milafanenu before us. Vehalachatenu. And then there's some words missing and then emet tzadik. But one way of reading this is we sinned. The halachatenu with our halacha in regard to Jewish law, we sinned. That is one possible reading of this text. Meyer discusses this how um, right halichatenu or halachatenu, and he says that there's a bit of a debate. Some texts, some dictionaries and whatnot say that it's talking about halacha. Some say the word hey, the letter hey, shouldn't really belong there, and it really should be bilechtenu in our going. Right, so we sinned bilechtenu. Presumably, Bishri Bain or something like that. We followed the stubbornness of our heart and we sinned. And um, we're not going to go through all the arguments. His, his suggestion, which sounds very much reasonable, is that most likely this is Bilechtenu, not Bihalachatenu, uh, that we sinned in our halacha. I think that that idiom would be unusual anyway. You don't find that in, certainly in later literature. But Bilechtenu in our going, in our path, generally, not in our halacha path, but Lechtenu, our walking, our going, in general, we sin. And uh, that, that seems to be the more likely reading. There's another passage, though, that maybe is a bit more convincing. So let's take a look at this here. Again, it's part of this exhortation, um, but it's sort of like a, the, the uh, narrator is giving this speech. With the spirit of the wisdom of truth of God, of, uh, of a person's ways are atoned all of his sins. Uh, a lot of flowery language about atonement through repentance and understanding and whatnot. Uh, a lot more to say about that in a different context, in the context of atonement, but not for today. And uvanot nafsho, if you, if you uh, pain your soul or, uh, or lower yourself, the kolchu keel, to for all of God's laws, yitar bisaro, your flesh becomes pure, can then be purified, or it's, it's the equivalent to being purified with waters of purification, and to be sanctified with waters of purification, and you should pre prepare his feet for halachat tamim, for the pure halacha, arguably, in all the ways of God. As God commanded in terms of the holidays, and not to go right or left, and not to go after, not to, to veer away from any of his teachings. Instead, you should do halachat Right? So it's halacha, right? Halacha tamim, a halacha of pureness, a pure halacha. You should, everyone should uh, prepare for pure halacha. So isn't this an occasion where the term halacha appears in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Um, and Meyer discusses this as well. He says, at first glance, it, it appears to provide a solid attestation, halacha tamim, walking or conduct or behavior in, uh, perfectly. But the problem is, um, and this, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a handful of texts uh, that are found, in, and a lot of the texts have multiple scrolls, meaning this rule of the community, it wasn't just one scroll with that text in it. There were multiple scrolls found in multiple caves that talk about different issues, relate, different parts of this text, and they're all, all fragmentary. But if you compare um, rule of the community, that the one, one of the ones that were found at the first Qumran cave with a different, that's one QS, with a different rule of community text found at the fourth Qumran cave. It's a very similar text overall, but very significantly for our purposes, instead um, you have, instead of lehalachat tamim, you have lehalech tamim, to go purely, which is a common term we find throughout, throughout uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And most likely this is the original term. Meyer argues for this as well, and, and it seems to be accepted. This is the standard view that the term Tamim is, you know, it's a you know a variant, but it's not it's not the real term. It's presumably the really should be Tamim. and uh, Tamim would, wouldn't be like the term halacha. It would be some uh, you know a variant spelling or uh, you know like the feminine form of the infinitive uh, going purely in the same way, but not the term halacha. Um, so that that's 
that's Meyer's conclusion. And that's why he says, we have no textual evidence uh, to the existence of the rabbinic sense of halakha in the first century BCE or CE. And even the manuscript evidence is at best debatable, at worst, non-existent. Infinitives don't usually have feminine forms, but this would be some variant form, right? So it would be a bit unusual, or it could just be a, a copyist's error. Um, so that's, that's uh, yeah, that's his conclusion. And again, some people still dispute this, but it seems to be the, uh, the, the standard view is that the term halakha does not appear in any of these texts. It means to go in general, like to go, uh, but no, there's no sense of halakha there. That being said, there's a different angle through which some scholars have argued that halakha is not in the text of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but somehow stands behind the text. And we're gonna get into that in a second, but first, uh, if there's any other questions, happy to take those. And if not, we'll jump, we'll jump into some other Qumran materials. Um, I mean, like, there's so much to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I, I feel like uh, I could give like a, you know, a 10 minute survey, but then, then we wouldn't be able to do the other stuff. But if you have any questions about the Dead Sea Scrolls in general, feel free to uh, stick around after and ask, and we, we can have a discussion after the basic class is over. Um, yeah, fine. So if there's no questions, then let's, let's uh, go forward to and talk about Dorshe Hachalakot. And, uh, you know, Try to listen to that term, see if there's some resonances or not. Um, but uh, this is going to be from uh, a Pesher Isaiah text. Pesher is a very interesting genre of text. We only have it at Qumran. Uh, Pesher means interpretation, like, like uh, uh, in Aramaic in the Bible, we have that term in Daniel or Pitaron, uh, is the same word in Hebrew, uh, in, with, uh, with tough shins uh, switching. Anyway, so Pesher means interpretation, and it's a genre where you take prophetic texts, um, we'll see Nachum, we'll see Yeshayahu here. You take a prophetic text and you go line by line uh, through the text. You, you quote a verse or a few verses and you explicate, it, you explicate it, but specifically with an eye to what's happening now. So if there's some discussion of a war between people that's pr uh, prophesied in the Bible, in the, in the prophet, you say, okay, here's what it's talking about. There's this war between you know, the Greeks and the Jews in 160. BCE, that's what that prophet was talking about hundreds of years prior. So it's, it's an interpretation that tries to flesh out what the prophecies are about. And it appears uh, in, in many, there's many different Pesher texts that are found from Qumran, and we don't have them from elsewhere. It's really a, a genre that we only have from Qumran. It's a very interesting one. So let's take a look at a couple of, excuse me, a couple of Pesher texts, and maybe one other text um, that... Uh, that uses this phrase uh, amongst, there's maybe a dozen times that this term, Dorshe Chalakot, comes up. We're going to look at three of them. Um, fine. So first, there's this long citation, which we're going to skip. Um, but this is a citation in the English. They tell you where the citation is from. They cheat. So it's from Isaiah 30, 15 to 18. So this citation from the prophet Isaiah, that's in chapter 30. And we're not going to read it because for our purposes, it's less significant. It says, Pesher HaDavar, the interpretation of the matter, which is always how it starts its interpretation. Talking about the end of days, or maybe later on in days, al dorshea chalakot. It's talking about dorshea chalakot. Literally means doresh is to seek. Chalakot is smooth things. It's about the seekers of smooth things. Asher Yerushalayim in Jerusalem. And here the text is a little cut off, but Torah below something. So we don't really get from this text what they what they do. We'll see more elsewhere. But it's a group that's in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if someone who knows a little bit about the history of Qumran, if you're, if you're in a cave in Qumran and you're saying, you're, 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 um, you're throwing shade at the people, the other group in Jerusalem, who are you probably attacking? Any suggestions? So, all right, if no one's jumping in. Right, so generally people see Qumran, the Qumran group, the Dead Sea group as either the Essenes or maybe the Sadducees, but they're definitely understood generally as a sectarian group um, in very broad strokes. And the sectarian groups are generally seen as opposed to the Pharisee groups, the Prushim, who are seen as the forerunners of the rabbis. Every single word I said is disputed and overly simplistic, but that we could be a whole other class on that. The sort of big picture theory people have is Qumran are sectarians, they're opposed to the Pharisees. 
Pharisees are in the cities in Jerusalem. They, at least at some point, they control things. Um, and these, this is this breakaway group, right? It's like the breakaway shul, right? They're out. They broke away. They, they don't have the, the real estate. They went out into some cave somewhere. Um, but they have a good kiddish. But, um, uh, and they're, right, they're not happy about what's going on in Jerusalem. So maybe this is attacking the Pharisees. Okay, so I'll hold that thought. The Pharisees in Jerusalem, maybe that's who the Darshech quote, the seekers of smooth things, are. And just about that term a bit more, um, it appears in the Bible in a few places, Lidrosh Chalakot, Chalak is something smooth, something easy, right? So that we find the phrase used like, don't, don't, you know, don't uh, be honest with me, don't tell me the hard truth, tell me the Chalakot, give me the easy stuff, right? So if you're Doresh Chalakot, you're seeking easy things, you're, you're seeking leniencies, you want to have an easy life, instead of living out in the desert with all these extreme purification rules, and you can't come into contact with people and all these limitations, you want to be able to live in the city and, uh, and uh, not have limitations and be able to interact with whoever you want and not worry about becoming impure. That, those are people, they're seeking smooth things. Those are the Pharisees. They're, they're trying to be lenient. Let's look at a couple of other uh, appearances of this term here, Pesher Nachum. This will be quoted from, the verse quoting from Nachum 2.12, right? So the verse is, Asher Halach Ari Vosham Gur Ari Ve'en Macharid, that's the verse. Pishro, the meaning is al Demetrius Melech Yavan, right? So obviously you can tell um, Demetrius Melech Yavan, that's not, uh, that's not biblical Hebrew, right? It's clearly talking about a historical figure, um, right? Uh, Yavan being Greece, Demetrius is the Greek king. Asher Bikesh Lavo Yerushalayim, he sought to enter Jerusalem, Ba'atzat, with the advice of what they call those looking for easy interpretations, the seekers of smooth things. God didn't let him in. God, God didn't want, uh, didn't want uh, Demetrius coming in because from the time of Antiochus in the 160s um, until, the, uh, until later, until the Kitiim, the Romans came, no one would, would, would come to Jerusalem. Um, so he didn't let him in. But who, what was going on? Jerusalem... Uh, he was he was uh, asked to go to Jerusalem by these Dorshei Chalakot. So it sounds like there's also some political tension between the Qumran group and the Dorshei Chalakot because they're inviting, they, they want this outside group to take over and uh, right they want this, uh, govern, this uh, general or king from Greece to come and take over and uh, Qumran is not happy about that and, and God's on their side. God didn't let him come in. Okay, that's another thing about Dorshei Chalakot. And now, looking at the Damascus document, which... Um, it's not, it's not quite a pesher, but it does share a lot with the pesherim. It does use the term uh, pishro in a couple of places as well. So this also is going to be biblical interpretations. As you see uh, in, in the English, they, they, there's a couple of cited texts, Hosea 4.16. So let's look at this. The verse says, Actually, the biblical text doesn't have the cane, but like a wayward cow, Israel has gone astray. What's that talking about? It interprets it. Ba'amod ish halatzon, the the man of ridicule stood up. Asher he tiefly Israel he dripped for Israel meimechazav deceitful waters vayatim betohu lo derech and he misled them on darkness, not a path. Vashach givhoto olam to undermine the the high things of the world. Vilasturmi nitzvot tzedek to diverge from the true path. To move the boundary, that the early ones set in their land. So remember what we saw in Lieberman, right? Moving the boundary often is talking about changing the law. That's an invocation of the curses at the end of Deuteronomy, right? They're trying to have the curses stick to them. In order to have them be handed over to the sword, seeking vengeance, vengeance of the covenant. Ba'avur, so what are they, they did all these things wrong, and what caused it? Ba'avur asher darshu b'chalakot. It's because they sought the smooth things. They, they were looking for leniencies. They were looking for gaps in the law. They were looking for leniencies. They, they were looking for the, the nice of neck, right? The animal that has a nice, a nice smooth neck, you know it's not carrying too many burdens. Right? It has it easy. Um, that's what they were, right? Because remember, the verse is talking about cows, right? So a cow with a smooth neck, is one that's not that's not working hard. It's seeking it's seeking smooth things like like a smooth neck, I guess. Um, so, right. So that that's that's or I guess the English here they have handsome neck, 
same idea, right? They're not working hard. They're either taking the easy path. So throughout this, throughout these, these passages, we see there's both political tension and religious tension between the Qumran group and this other group that they call the Darshay Chalakot, who are in Jerusalem. A lot, of, a lot of scholars have argued that this is talking about none other than the Pharisees, as we mentioned, the forerunners of the rabbis. Now, what's interesting um, is, uh, and this would tie in to the idea that uh, Qumran, there are all these stringencies in terms of, of ritual, uh, different ritual purity and the like. And uh, arguably, they're saying, we have all these stringencies. These people have all these leniencies. And uh, you know, God hates them. And that's why all these prophets, uh, the true interpretation of all these prophecies, are against what those Pharisees are doing in Jerusalem with their leniencies and whatnot. So what does this all have to do with anything? What does that have to do with halakha? So the argument has been made um, by multiple people, but um, uh, well put in this paragraph by Professor Lawrence Schiffman of NYU, and we'll just read it. This article is called New, Insight, New Light on the Pharisees, Insight from the Dead Sea, Scroll, uh, Dead sea Scrolls. And he says, because the Quran sectarians objected to Pharisaic halakha, not based directly on scripture, the Pharisees are referred to in the scrolls as dorshe chalakot, literally seekers after smooth things. The phrase draws on the biblical usage of chalakot as lies or falsehoods. But chalakot is also a pun on halachot, the plural of halakha, and the term for religious laws known to us from later rabbinic usage. So this is the basic argument that uh, Schiffman and others make, that if you're talking about dorshe chalakot, seeking after smooth things, you're not just citing that biblical turn of phrase, but you're also probably implying something about Dorshe Halachot. And as we know, be Doresh Halacha is that's what you do, right? You study, you interpret Halacha, you're Doresh Halacha. So that the, the phrase together, I think, is partially what gave rise to this. We'll keep going. This pun indicates that Halacha is a term for religious law. It was already common Pharisaic usage as early as the Hasmonean period. Now, conveniently, we don't have any Pharisaic texts in the original, right? We only have you know, Chazal, the rabbis, quote some things from the Prushim, if they even are the Pharisees, but you can't say, well, I looked at all the Pharisaic material and it's not there, because we don't have any Pharisaic material. So you say, probably, if there was Pharisaic material, it would have said halachot, and this is a, a pun uh, and a polemic against that. Um, and he says, also, the term halacha means tradition, as we saw this last week, tradition of the fathers of the elders, right? Halacha can mean, um, but it can also mean a specific tradition that was passed down. So the dorshea halachot the Dorshe Halachot, they're interpreting their traditions, but they're interpreting it falsely. They're choosing falsehoods. They're seeking opportunities to violate the law. They're choosing luxury. Um, fine. And they violate the covenant. This is the passage we saw. Violate the covenant, annul the law, band together to do away with the righteous. And that's why the Pharisees have it all wrong, and only Qumran has it right. So this is the theory that, that some have raised, that Dorshe Halachot is a pun on Dorshe Halachot. Needless to say, this is a little controversial for a few reasons. Number one. Um, if your best evidence for a term's existence is a pun playing on that term, that's a little bit of a weak basis, right? Because, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's some other term that they were using uh, that, that it's a pun for. Maybe it's halachot. Uh, I don't know. You can, you can make up anything, right? But it's sort of circular reasoning, right? How do we know they were using the term halachot? Because it says halachot. And obviously, that's a pun on halachot. Well, you're, you're presuming your conclusion. That's one weakness. Um, and another, another weakness is uh, it could be that halakot and halachot um, sounds more similar to the uh, modern Western ear that, uh, that, and the modern, modern Western pronunciation of Hebrew than the ancient, right? Because a kuf doesn't quite sound like a chaf, and the chet doesn't quite sound like a hey. But, uh, you know, if you look at the spelling here, the transliteration here is it's extremely similar, right? But uh, in any event, there are some weaknesses with this idea. Um, I think it's sort of an open question. I think some scholars will tell you that it is a pun on halachot. Some will tell you it's not. But in any event, this is an argument, not that, not that the term halachot appears at Qumran, but that it was known. It was common knowledge. And obviously, these terms are a pun and a play on that word. Right? And as I said, it appears multiple times, like about a dozen times in our Qumran corpus. So um, you know, that the thought would be, if, if the term halachot existed, it was obviously well known the point where they would make the same pun multiple times and it became really a catchphrase. Alternatively, this has nothing to do with halakha at all, and Darshay Chalakot is drawing from the biblical text. And uh, so either no one knew what halakha meant, it wasn't a word, or it was it stands behind multiple passages in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's an interesting, an interesting debate. We'll talk about that a bit more in a bit. 
um, names of scrolls. Another way, another way, and now we're going to move more into the modern period. When 20th century scholars named Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered in the 40s, and then uh, somehow it took them about 45 years to get through all of them, long story, um, but they named them, some of them they named, they named, gave them names like Halachic Letter. This is Miktzat Maseh Torah, right? So MMT, which I think it's more frequently called now, actually follows the name, the text itself. It starts off by saying these are some of the teachings of the Torah, Miktzat Maseh Torah. That would be the, the name it gives itself. Modern scholars called it the Halachic Letter, or a different text, 4Q, that means it's found in the fourth cave at Qumran, 4Q Halacha A, right? It's just called the Halachic Text. Um, what's in the text? Or 4Q Halacha B. What's in 4Q Halacha B? I don't know, it talks about a uh, thousand uh, cubits and priests and different sacrifices and uh, uh, what to do on the Sabbath. So it doesn't say the word halacha, of course, um, but they say, oh, it sounds like it's talking about law. Or 4Q Halacha C. This has only about 10 words in it. Miyom, Lishenim, Dachi, Liached, Nazid, Nadivemo. This is all that's there. This is all that the words they could reconstruct. Right, look at the English. There's not much here. But uh, they decided enough here. Uh, the word pure appears. Maybe that's what it was. This must be a halachic text. So they called it 4Q Halacha C. So there, there's something unusual. And, and uh, as is noted, article about um, names assigned to scrolls. So right, it mentions that uh, sometimes some of the early scholars of the Dead Sea Scrolls who gave these names, one of the examples of the term halacha on, on the text we just saw, con content designation based on the later rabbinic use of the term, even though the word does not appear at all in Dead Sea Scrolls. And they mention that if you look in these, in these uh, namings, right, which appeared um, uh, back in the day, it says, right, in 1957 and 62, um, it says that uh, they, none of the editors elaborate on the name assigned to the manuscripts. They just gave it that name. Yeah, this is halakha, fine. They weren't too self-critical or, or self-reflective about that. They sort of just gave it this name halakha. And beyond that, beyond the naming of the scrolls, in a variety of works about Qumran and about other ancient, uh, ancient Jewish or pre-Christian or Christian texts, we also find uh, this term a lot, right? Uh, Lawrence Schiffman's first book is The Halakha at Qumran, or uh, Philip Siegel, The Halakha of Jesus of Nazareth, according to the Gospel of Mas Matthew, right? Um, that's not, you know, uh, I don't know, you translate that into Hebrew, you could like uh, publish a sefer and try uh, selling it in, in Mashar or something, but uh, that wouldn't go over so well, right? It's a little, a little jarring, the association here, um, or this a little bit less extreme, Aaron Shemesh, Halakha in the Making, which is about the relationship between Qumran law and rabbinic law and trying to draw connections between them. Or this, this article, Samaritan Halakha, right? The Samaritans have their own version of the Bible, of the Pentateuch at least, and their own traditions, their own interpretations of it. They wouldn't use the term Halakha themselves, but this is a projection of the term Halakha. So across the board, and there's many more, um, ancient Judaism, ancient Jewish texts that were written before the term Halakha ever existed, are now referred to by co contemporary scholars as halakha, halakha Qumran, halakha of Jesus, and there's multiple texts that, multiple works that talk about the halakha of Jesus, um, or Samaritan halakha, etc. So what exactly is going on here? Um, because right as we're finding again and again, the actual textual evidence in historical context for the term halakha are is pretty weak. The, the term itself doesn't seem to appear at all until rabbinic literature. Um, and yet, people see puns on the term that, that doesn't appear. People name texts uh, using the word halakha, and then they, they refer to the whole corpus as halakha, which is, which is apparently anachronistic. The term didn't exist back then. People don't call biblical law halakha generally, right? You wouldn't say, let's say, I don't know, the, 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 the laws of, of uh, Shomrim, of Baileys, of, of people watching other people's things in Sefer Shmo. You wouldn't say, yes, that's the halakha of Exodus. That's not generally how it's referred to. Um, halakha is usually focused on Chazal. So what, what's, behind, what's behind this focus and the, the prevalence of using this term halakha about ancient Judaism, even pre-Chazal, even before the term apparently exists? So I think at least a little bit of it is about a struggle for you know, what, how to understand both the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves and really how to understand the whole field of uh, ancient Judaism, or what's sometimes called ancient Judaism. So first we'll talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then we'll broaden it a little bit. 
So Lauren Schiffman, this is uh, an article he wrote, and then he basically wrote a book expanding on this idea. The argument is that, of course, all scholars have particular biases, right? And uh, histori historiographers uh, try to figure out what those biases are and how they play themselves out in the scholarship. And Judaic Studies has its fair share of that. And the history of research on the Dead Sea Scrolls is an excellent example of people playing out their biases. So first of all, he notes, for many years, um, it was basically all Christians working on the scrolls, and that was by design. The people who were given control of it were a Christian, and they didn't let Israelis, they said, for, you know, for, like, you know, uh, West Bank, you know, which was under the control of Jordan, you couldn't have Israelis, but they didn't want to have non-Israeli Jews either, which probably has less to do with geopolitics and more with religion. Um, and uh, even, I think Schiffman even uses the word Judenrein, which is a little bit of a trigger word for some in this article. But he says, what has been the effect of this confessional limitation? What's the impact of keeping Jews out of the scholarship for decades as being the people who worked on the texts? So it, first he says it's allowed the rise of an entire genre of Christian scroll research. And basically his theory is, and, and this, put this, uh, this checks out, conservative Christians want to accent the uniqueness of Jesus. So they say Qumran is very Jewish and very halachic. The more halachic Qumran is, the more distinct and new Jesus is, and that's the you know conservative idea that uh, they're less universalistic, they're more particularist. That Jesus had this special revelation, this special uh, unique status that diverges completely from what came before. Right, it was a, a like a, a full revelation. And then more liberal Christians see Christianity as closer in origins to Judaism. No, it didn't like come out of nowhere. It developed out of ancient Judaism, and then they want to play down and minimize the halachic nature of Qumran. Right, to these scholars, Qumran is, in, is seen as closer in spirit and practice to Christianity. In, in his book, um, Reclaiming the Dead Sea Scrolls, Schiffman goes through some passages of Christian scholarship that, and says, you know, that they sort of look at the archaeology of Qumran and they say, ah, this is the scriptorum, and this is where they would say grace after meals. And they're projecting their, you know, sort of their Christian categories onto the text, which obviously was on, onto the, the, both the, the archaeology of the site of Qumran and onto all the texts that are relevant. Uh, and, and of course, the, you know, Qumran, the, the community there existed before, um, but well before Jesus was born. And uh, he contrasts that with, you know, you could just sort of change the terms. Instead of saying scriptorum, you can say Beit Midrash. And all of a sudden it feels a lot more Jewish, right? So, so partially what's going on here, and, and that's the claim of his book, Reclaiming the Dead Sea Scrolls, is the Dead Sea Scroll scholarship was basically um, a, a place where Christian theology was playing itself out, and Qumran was seen as pre-Christian in one way or another, either pre-Christian and therefore similar to Christianity, or pre-Christian and therefore different from Christianity, but through that lens. And the reclaiming of Dead Sea Scrolls with, you know, the early Jewish Dead Sea Scroll scholars, uh, Larry Schiffman, Joseph Baumgarten, and others, was to say, wait a second, we need to think about this, we need to think about Qumran not as pre-Christian, but as pre-Rabbinic. And I think a lot of what's going on with, with the use of halakha by Schiffman himself in his, in his book, The Halakha Qumran, is an attempt to say, wait a second, we need to reset our assumptions. Instead of thinking about Qumran as pre-Christian, we should think about it as pre-Rabbinic. And what's the most clear marker of Rabbinic Judaism? Of course, it's halakha, uh, certainly in contrast to Christianity, right? That's a, a point of polemic. Is the law, does the law provide life or death? I think uh, the New Testament has something to say on the matter. So um, I think to the extent that you see the prevalence of halakha, both the term halakha referring to some of these things. So some of that may play into early, uh, early internal Christian thoughts, but certainly people like, uh, like Schiffman talking about the halakha Quran, it's an attempt to reclaim the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you might make the argument, and I think if uh, I didn't uh, do a full survey, but a lot of the halakha of Jesus and the like um, really started coming about in the 80s and 90s, when uh, Christian scholars also sort of, uh, you know, came around to the idea that you have to look at rabbinic literature to get, you know, as well to get part of the picture, right? To understand Qumran, you have to look at what came before, you have to look at what came after in different versions and see where things tie in. So it's almost like the, the prevalence of halakha is a corrective of sorts and maybe uh, an overcorrective. Maybe they, they overcompensated to, uh, to, re, uh, to, to uh, clarify and emphasize and maybe overemphasize some of the pre-rabbinic aspects of Qumran. Because as we said before, you don't usually refer to biblical law as halakha, but all of a sudden people are referring to this ancient, uh, you know, this, this uh, post-biblical pre, 
rabbinic material or pre-Christian material, happening to look at it, they're all of a sudden calling that Holocaust. So I think a lot of this is a, a struggle over how to interpret Qumran. Is, should you interpret Qumran in light of the Christianity that followed or in light of the, the rabbinic Judaism that followed? And really, this is a broader point. As we see from these examples, from Samaritan Halakha and Halakha of Jesus, part of this is also a question of ancient Judaism as a field as a whole. The, the, you know, we, uh, I use the term ancient Judaism. Some people don't like the term. The original term that people used to use was spät uh, Judaismus, right? Uh, late Judaism from German. So what does that mean, late Judaism? That was a term, if you're, if you're a, a Christian, and particularly of the supersessionist type, that you know, Judaism is here and Christianity is here, you know, improvement. So late Judaism is, um, actually there are different Christian theories, but either late Judaism is where Judaism went off the rails and Christianity picked up, picked up uh, where it needed to go, or maybe Judaism was slowly, uh, slowly improving to the point where it became Christianity, different theories, uh, as Schiffman alluded to. But um, the idea of, of late Judaism implying it's somehow defective and it was sort of waiting for Christianity to come in and fix things or improve things, that was, that was sort of baked into the scholarship. So that ancient Judaism is an attempt to avoid that, although it may not, may not succeed perfectly. But really this question of what is, what is the period of ancient Judaism? What is the period of Qumran? Who defines that? Is it defined by Christian scholars who talk about it as pre-Christian or is it defined by Jewish scholars who talk about it as pre-Jewish and also some Christian scholars who now talk about halakha as well? That, I think that's really what's at stake here. Right, so when we talk about when does the term halakha emerge, we're talking about the emergence of a term. That's definitely true. And uh, you know, you can you can do all the studies of Akkadian that you want and all the text studies in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's one part of it. But I think another piece of this very interesting uh, history, uh, and the and I think really what you find the projection of the term halakha onto Qumran when it's not obviously there, is is this this very fraught issue of does the field of ancient Judaism does it belong to the Jews? Does it belong to the Christians? Who controls it? And of course, in theory, no one controls it. It's a, it's a scholarly field that should be open. But as we know, people, uh, you know, people have their own tendencies, their own biases, and it's played itself out in that vein. So I think that's the end of my spiel. Very happy to take questions, comments, or thoughts. Um, but I think hopefully we've gained a little bit of a window, both into the emergence of the term, whether it's you know, just from going in general and internal development, and then you make that a bit abstract in rabbinic literature, whether it ties into some Akkadian term, which may appear in uh, the term for tax that appears in Ezra, or the term for the moving of the constellations that refers to, you know, God's uh, intent, God's plan, God's will. And then the question of whether the term appears in Qumran, either the term halakha itself or a pun on halakha, or the projection of halakha onto this literature, uh, as part of the struggle over the identity of ancient Judaism. So in any event, questions, uh, it's, the floor is open for questions or you know, general discussion. Um, yeah, I see okay. someone's, yeah, go for it, go for it, Miriam. Okay, sorry, I, uh, I just wanted to see if I understood you correctly about why the Christians who were first to get their hands on the Dead Sea Scrolls were talking about halakha. Were you saying that by uh, saying this was Jesus's halakha that they were giving Christianity the legitimacy that they were looking for? Um, I don't know if I'd quite say that. So I think there's, there's probably more than one reason. So I think in the early, some of the earlier years, they might've said, ah, this is halakha, meaning this is clearly different than what, uh, what Christianity is doing. So we'll mark it, we'll mark it as, you know, Jewish and different and, you know, halakha. And uh, then, you know, Jesus's new path doesn't need halakha and whatever. Um, that's one reason why you might do that, early, especially in the early years. I think in the later years, once there was this influence of Schiffman and Baumgarten and others who said, wait a second, we're forgetting about the connection between, uh, between ancient Judaism and, uh, and uh, you know, sorry, the, the relationship between Qumran and rabbinic literature. So then a lot of, a lot of scholars, Christian uh, as well, talked about this thing called common Judaism, which is, you know, during the second temple period, it's not like there was pre-Jews pre and pre-Christians. There was to a large degree, everyone just agreed. There was just this thing called Judaism that basically everyone practiced that was taken for granted with some variations on, on top of that. So, and, and the, the, that literature talked a lot about halakha. And I think you know, some of the things we saw, Samaritan halakha or Je the halakha of Jesus is within that frame, realizing that, you know, Jesus living in the first century was building on or was, was living within a world that had this common Judaism that involved halakha. 
And so I don't think that they were legitimating it per se, as much as um, you know, uh, getting on board with the idea that you have to read early Christianity in light of early Judaism as well. Got it. Thank you so much. Sure. I see a couple of questions in the chat. One, uh, someone noted fascinating that the Shulchan Aruch is written much later. Uh, that's definitely true. And Ryan, if you say the word halakha, some people immediately jump and say, oh, halakha, you know, the, the Shulchan Aruch is the halakha, right? The 16th century code of Jewish law, that is, the Jew that is Jewish law. But I think as we saw last week, the term halakha goes back, it's very, very prevalent within rabbinic literature. It appears all over the place. And as we saw today, some argue it appears earlier. It has earlier uh, sources. Um, so that is definitely, yeah. So, you know, the, I think the people who hyper-associate halakha with the Shulchan Aruch, that's presumably because the Shulchan Aruch was very authoritative in terms of determining the law. Um, but uh, certainly the term has a very extensive prehistory uh, prior to that. Yeah, Jason. The people who were um, Dorshe Dor Halachot, um, right? Like, wh what were their main objections to the perishim with the Pharisees? Like, wh why, like, why were they saying they were being too, too lenient or that they were seeking an easy path? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, we don't know for sure, but our, our best guess probably would be to look at the text Miktzat Maaseh Torah or the, the so-called halachic letter we talked about. Um, take a look over there. It talks mostly about ritual purity laws and how you conduct the temple and, and all sorts of details in terms of that. Like if you, you know, the, the, what Chazal called Nitzok, if you pour something, you pour a liquid, a stream from one place into another, if there's impurity below, does it defile the item above or not? A very technical issue of purity. And they said, you guys, you guys, uh, you know, in Jerusalem or whatnot are lenient about this, but really this should be impure. And there's a, you know, about a dozen or so examples of where they say you're being lenient and you should be more strict. So they, there, were, there were very specific things. So they have all sorts of laws. Um, you look in Sarah Hayachat, another text, that's the rule of the community that we mentioned. It has all these rules of, you know, if you, if you speak ill of your fellow, you get punished, you get exiled from the camp. And uh, there, there's a whole, I mean, if you want, uh, uh, email me. I can, I can send you a handful of articles that talk about this. But probably the place to start is just to look at look at Sarah Hayachad and consider that in light of the Bible and in light of rabbinic literature, in light of whatever other texts we have, it seems like there's a lot of laws there that are much more stringent. And presumably they looked around, they said, wait, we're keeping these stringencies, other people aren't. Well, that's obviously because they don't have the proper teachings and they're, you know, they're being overly lenient. They're seeking leniencies, which is why they don't have our stringencies. So I think it was largely that uh, those uh, specific um, legal issues or ritual issues Although it also, as we saw, there also are some like geopolitical things, you know, why'd you bring, why'd you bring the Greeks to come uh, march through Jerusalem? So there, it's obviously more than just the ritual issues, but that, that seems to be the central issue there. Um, I got a question in the chat, a direct message. What's the difference between Din and Halakha in the Mishnah? So this, I guess, goes back to last week. I'll just mention uh, Din seems to be the theoretical law. Halakha seems to be the practical law. That appears more in the Midrash Halakha, uh, in the Midrashic text, than in the Mishnah, but it, I think uh, it, would, it would work the same in either, in either case. Any other questions or comments? Okay, um, and I'll just, I'll reiterate, as I said last week, everyone should always feel free to get in touch with me, um, Shlomo Zukier at gmail.com, and to discuss these issues or anything else, a lot, a lot of interesting stuff. Um, and just uh, a heads up for next week is that this week we sort of bridged the earliest sources on halakha with contemporary scholarship and how it uses the term. Next time we'll, we'll, uh, we'll re remain in the modern period and uh, look at some other contemporary issues, although we'll, we'll draw on some earlier things too, but we'll talk about some, uh, some contemporary debates about how to, apply, uh, how to apply the term. Michael, you wanna, yeah. Yeah, all right. Thank you, Rabbi Zuhir, and thank you to everyone for being here. I just wanted to say a quick word about some of our, our upcoming opportunities for learning. In addition to our last class for this series next week, we are really about to head into our um, our pre-Pesach learning with a number of special events coming up related to that. Uh, you can check out information about all of those at drisha.org slash classes, but I wanted to highlight 
a few different things. Uh, this coming Sunday, the 14th at noon, we have our annual Rappaport Memorial Lecture with Rabbi Alex Israel on the topic of From the Sea to Sinai, Tests of the Wilderness. Uh, in the week after that, on uh, a week later on Sunday, March 21st, we have a Yom Iyun for getting ready for Pesach with two sessions. We have Adoption or Resistance, the structure of the Seder and the Greco-Roman Symposium with Dr. Yair Furstenberg, as well as remembering the Korban Pesach in Masechet Pesachim and in ancient Jewish sources, Dr. Yedida Koren. Uh, again, that's uh, Sunday the 21st from 11.30 to 1.30 for the two sessions. On Tuesday, March 23rd, we have an event called Seder Telling at eight in the evening. That is going to be an opportunity to come together with different storytellers from around the Jewish world, uh, thinking through in their own terms, uh, the ways to understand the meaning of the Seder, to hear an unscripted reenactment and opportunity to get different perspectives on the deeper meanings behind the holiday. Uh, and then finally, rounding out our pre-Pesach learning, we have a Tani Bechorot Siyam with Rabbi Leah Sarna at 8 a.m. on Monday, or sorry, on Thursday, March 25th. Uh, Rabbi Sarna will be completing her study of Masecha Sachim. Uh, so you can get more information about all of those events uh, on our website at drisha.org slash classes. And of course, stay tuned. Hopefully very soon we're going to have information coming out about our post-Pesach programming as well.